As you well know, Toe dips its toes, so to speak, into philosophy, both publicly as well as I do so in my personal life. I encourage you to do the same with Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Nearly 2,000 years after it was written, this guide to personal growth remains eminently relevant for anyone seeking to lead a meaningful life. Meditations isn't your average self-help book. In fact, it was the emperor's personal journal, and this makes it useful not only as a form of propositional knowledge, but to aid perspectival knowledge, something that John Verveke talks about as exigent, though missing in our culture. We sit in this improbable, even preposterous position of having the opportunity to peer into one of the deepest soul-searching, thoughtful, private questions, internal struggles that the once leader of the world thought about in his moments alone. Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on tow. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a Castrop sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. My name is uh, Dick Bond. Uh, I'm at the Canadian Institute for Theoretical Astrophysics, which is based at the University of Toronto, but it is uh, flung across all of Canada under the guise of CETA, Canadian Institute for Theoretical Astrophysics. I'm a theoretical astrophysicist, a cosmologist, first and foremost a theoretical physicist. I've been um, thinking about these universal matters throughout my entire working career. And you could say, well, even before, because that's what people do, you think about matters universal. When did you become first interested in physics and astronomy? Probably birth. No, uh, uh, I would say something that had an impact on me uh, was uh, a book that emerged in the early 50s, uh, not that I was reading in the early 50s, but um, it was called, I think, 123 Infinity, which is a nice, by George Gamow, who um, was sort of Mr. Big Bang, although Hoyle named it. Uh, and what was so compelling about it is that he was trying to... Um, take the information they had then on the universe and on formation of earth geology and all of that and life for that matter and he tried to make a synthesis of going from of basically the beginning through to the evolution of life on earth this is one book and it was amazing amazing that human thought could try and capture this of course we have gone a large distance from the information he had back then. But on the other hand, he was a very smart guy and this was uh, pretty compelling. And I'm not the only one. I was talking to uh, uh, somebody at uh, NYU, great professor um, there, and it seems that she, of the same era as me, had the same uh, revelation from Gamma's 123 Infinity. And then it's just understanding the universe uh, became the thing to be done, which is what every single person on the planet is trying to do. So I'm just part of that process. 
Do you consider Gamov to be not only a salient influence on your life, but on your academic background? At one point, I wanted to be a writer. Uh, and then I said to myself, uh, you can't write without knowing what the leading edge of human thought is on uh, reality, if you like. And that anybody who's writing without being there is writing something which will uh, maybe will have things like emotional truth and other such things, but it cannot be a correct statement. Not that what the statements we're making now are correct. Anyway, so what I did is I sort of shot my bow from that period, and the arc of my career has been exactly the attempt to do this kind of full integration of thinking and trying to um, take science, which means knowledge, and apply it to the, the thing that really matters to me, which is the eye. <laughs> that is to say, uh, the science is the way to try and comprehend one's self and the place in the universe, which is not an easy thing to do. And most people uh, have minds that are split into a lot of channels, and many of the channels don't talk to each other. But a goal ultimately is to integrate and now that I'm of an age, uh, 39 or so, actually, was, uh, that, that's the Jack Benny thing, right? Um, that I feel that I'm at the situation where I've got to take the leap and try and integrate all of the ideas of which I have traveled over many in my career. It's always been with this goal, but now I've decided I have license to go crazy. Do you believe that science is the cutting edge? It is the modus operandi for uh, humans to understand and see the universe and that it was the great development. I mean, I can go back to definitely the Greeks, but pre-Greeks, uh, through the whole uh, period of the Renaissance. And uh, in particular, there is that period that is called the Age of Reason. Uh, we have now entered into the age of unreason in the world around us, although everything is trying to unify with everybody communicating with information, uh, and the information flood is kind of overwhelming, and it does split into streams, and we see this manifested all around us. But what should be at the core is the basic quest for knowledge, which is the quest for science. So science is then transcending just physics or chemistry or biology. It is at the heart of uh, humanity and what, how people should be operating. That is to say, you want knowledge and you want to apply knowledge to the world around us. What's meant by the term universe? Well, that's an interesting question because what is often put out there is the word which I am not that fond of, although many of my friends like to use it, the multiverse. Uh, there is only universe. That's what the uni is in front. It's the one. And then the question is, how complex is it? But it is all that there is basically by definition. The thing that is very humbling, if you like, the universe seems vast, the one, the part that we can see, but the way we think of it now is that what we see is only a 
tiny part of a much, much greater whole. Then the question is, is it all connected or are there disconnected elements? Well, if it is a completely disconnected element, we could never know about it because there's no communication. Uh, the things that are beyond uh, the speed of light reach, uh, we don't get information on. The only way we can get that information is by um, looking around us in the universe, try to understand how the patterns have developed, and then say, <laughs> I'll go back to one, two, three, infinity, you then say that this applies to the regions that you cannot see. That, of course, uh, is impossible to get right, really. But on the other hand, um, it is clear that the themes that we see around us and out to um, the observable edge of the universe, uh, there is a commonality. I mean, that is an amazing thing, right? That, you know, you don't go into some area of the universe which is drastically different. I mean, it, in time it's different because it evolves, but um, it isn't like, uh, at least in the patch that we can see, that there is a coherence. The coherence is essential, basically, but for me, I don't really see why there should be coherence. I mean, coherence writ really large, that is to say everything connected. In fact, one of the things that I'm known for is a, a label, the cosmic web, which of course web means something to everybody because of the um, internet web. But uh, what that word or those words cosmic web indicate is the interconnectivity of everything and that every aspect of the universe is connected with every aspect. So that's sort of cliche and obvious, but it's also incredibly profound. It means that everything is uh, dressed in the interactions with everything else. And uh, in particular, it's writ large in the universe that we can see. Uh, but for me, the universe is beyond that. And uh, one way you can think about this is, um, I, I don't want to get into the uh, concept of a universe simulation, although that's an interesting point. But uh, in a sense, we think of the universe as a realization of reality. And then we think there can be a lot of realities, and at some level, quantum mechanics has those uh, uh, realities interacting with each other because uh, the quantum theory uh, is one of its basic elements is that information diffuses, which means that you don't, you cannot over-concentrate information, so it flows out. I mean, that's a manifestation of that is things like the hydrogen atom, et cetera, where you don't have the electric charge right at the center on top of the proton. The uncertainty aspects of the universe enforce through this kind of interaction that uh, it's got, you know, a ground state. I, I may be going too far here, but it's got a ground state structure. Um, and, uh, you know, that's manifested everywhere that there are these structures that occur. And one aspect of the structure is, uh, uh, information trying to propagate from 
whatever the origin is to uh, throughout the universe. I mean, that's sort of one of the main themes that I work on in, in what I do research on. That was a long way from what is universe, but in fact it isn't because it's, in my view, at the heart of universe. Regarding complex structure, how does it arise? You know, we have a mantra, and the mantra has been in place from, well, actually, you could really trace it to um, around 1980 or so, but maybe even a bit before, uh, but not well-formed then, which is that, uh, the, that, that there is something fundamental which we believe is happening all around us, something that we work with all of the time. Everything is built upon it. We call it the vacuum, which sounds like it's nothing, but in fact, the vacuum is like everything. And uh, that'll probably become clearer as I uh, say more. But within the vacuum, there are these fluctuations. They're often called virtual fluctuations. What does it mean to be virtual? It means that humans aren't seeing it. But if you take the vacuum and bend it, then you get observable consequences. And one of the observable consequences is all of the structure in the universe, or at least that's the current picture. And so, uh, and it's a picture which is so compelling. It's one of the reasons I put so much energy into trying to understand the concept of deformed vacua, which is, so anyway, the basic picture and th these fluctuations are happening all around us. And, you know, at some level, all of your structures, yourself, is built upon that underlying structure of this, what you might call vast sea of fluctuations that exists, and that uh, all of phenomenal reality is played on top of that huge, it's like a huge sea, and you, we're sort of, you know, uh, sailing along the surface of that sea, and we don't know how deep the sea is, we don't know how far the vacuum goes, uh, it may go, I doubt anything goes to infinity, but um, uh, it could. Um, and so the, um, uh, anyway, so the vacuum is uh, fundamental, fluctuations that are um, like virtual, I mean, people think of it as virtual particles. So you think of charges like plus and minus, plus and minus always appearing, but that they don't actually break apart from each other so that you actually can observe in your detector a plus or a minus. They're kind of always oscillating and blending. But the same aspect is that that's kind of a, so-called fermion picture where there's, uh, well, I, I actually want, don't want to get heavily un unless we go there eventually into fermions and bosons. We probably will, but maybe not at this point in the conversation. Uh, anyway, the basic mantra is quantum fluctuations, but that isn't the important issue. That they exist is fundamental. That they condense and freeze out and uh, freeze in patterns of uh, density fluctuations, gravitational potential fluctuations. Those things are what ultimately grows to make all of the complex structure of the universe. So we have a, what is in effect a relatively 
simple theory, I mean, it's ridiculous that we think we can think about it, which is, you know, the first 10 to the minus 33 seconds of the universe and all of that, but uh, we do, and it just seems like home, those thoughts, right? And the consequences are everything, and we actually think we can observe them through the impact on things like the cosmic microwave background, the photon afterglow, the Big Bang, and, and, and many other things. So we have a, a theory where we can make observations here and now on Earth, in the large-scale structure of the universe, and uh, interpret what we think is going on at these unimaginably early times. And part of that is because what was happening at those unimaginably early times, at least in the region that we can see, seems to have been relatively simple. We're looking for more complexity in what emerged from the ultra-early universe because that would give us more information. But right at the moment, the amount of information we're getting is we're essentially compressing all of the information in the ultra-early universe into what is in effect two numbers. It's hard to believe, but that's the story. I mean, that is the general point about structure formation. Then, as the universe evolves, uh, species emerge. I'm not unlike in evolution, uh, biological evolution. Uh, so there may be some kind of grand unification soup, which I think is probably correct. Uh, inflationary energy, and I know you want to get to this eventually, uh, that is to say what is called dark energy, uh, that that's like this kind of universal coherent energy that uh, splits up into what is ultimately all of the species of the universe, and then it and then the universe passes through various epochs where certain of those species are more important than in other times. Species come and species go, and we're dealing with some kind of fossil uh, relic, which is a non-trivial one because it's what makes us up. Can you explain how the universe expands and what's meant by it? Contrary to popular view, it's true that on large scales, the universe around us is expanding, but it is not expanding here in this room. It's in an, uh, effectively a state of equilibrium. Uh, and so when galaxies and other such things form, there is no expansion associated with that. This is a good thing. Otherwise, we would all be getting fatter because of the universal expansion. But uh, uh, on the large scales, very large scales, there's an expansion. The expansion is characterized by a rate of expansion. Uh, it's called the Hubble parameter. I'm sure you've heard of it, which is basically just the expansion rate of the universe. But you can also think of it as uh, spatially dependent. And so in our region of the universe, our galaxy here, there's uh, effectively uh, no uniform expansion or contraction. There is a an equilibrium. It's not a true equilibrium because everything is always changing in time. It's just a question of how slowly or how fast it's changing. Uh, but um, anyway, dynamical universe. Uh, and now I'm losing the thread of where we were trying to go, basically because I was going someplace. So I was trying to give you a way of looking at 
the universe that is actually not standard. But if I am to look around me, which if I can, I will. This is a uh, undergraduate student who's working with me. This is density against time, showing the thermal history of the universe as it starts at the beginning and goes through various phases. I know you're going to ask this question later, but I thought, thanks for arranging my prop. And here were four points about what we were going to do. She's still engaged with this with me. And one of them is the h naught tension, which has gotten a lot of press recently because from the cosmic microwave background, which is this really high precision thing that I've been very much engaged with throughout my entire career, uh, we get a certain value of how rapidly on large scales the universe is expanding on average. And then there are other claims using uh, things like supernova and stars of a specific form that the value is different in the quite general cosmic neighborhood around us. This is called the H naught tension, the expansion rate tension. And it's the number of meetings about this is enormous around the world. And the issue is whether it's a systematic effect of not understanding the data well enough or whether there is some new profound thing associated with something that happened relatively late that caused this expansion to change. We already know that the expansion is changing. In fact, uh, that was part of the great discovery of what's called the dark energy. Uh, but it may be that there is a different expansion in the area around us. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Razor blades are like diving boards. 
The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson Razor works with the standard dual-edge blades that give you that old-school shave with the benefits of this new-school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. Uh, out to a fairly large distance and then uh, on even larger distances. So uh, this is a puzzle. And why did I do this? I was just trying to say that there is a simple way of thinking about the evolution of the universe, uh, as long as you add position as well as time into how you think about it and that it's inhomogeneous and that it's the same basic language, but it is rarely used that way in the subject, which uh, one of my missions, even with undergraduates, is to teach that way of looking at things. What is dark energy? Dark energy... Uh, well, it, it emerged as so-called Einstein's cosmological constant. And uh, uh, back in uh, 1917 or so, uh, the observations were such that there was no indication, A, that there was clearly external galaxies. And so it seemed like the stars and structure, they were just buzzing around us so that on average it was an equilibrium situation. And so, yet, when you take the laws of gravity, Einstein's theory, curiously enough, um, it would either contract or expand automatically. The contraction is called gravitational instability, and it's the way we understand how structure formed in the universe. It's the gravitational instability theory of the formation of structure. And so he said, well, you know, maybe the data is going to enforce me, so I'm going to put in a term, which the theory allowed, and uh, it's called the cosmological constant. And then uh, about a decade later or so, somebody proved that that theory is unstable as well. And, uh, and Hubble discovered the expansion of the universe by looking at galaxies nearby and how they were moving away. And, um, and Einstein, you, you know, this, uh, famous statement of Einstein's that, uh, it was the biggest blunder. He never apparently actually said that. And it wasn't a blunder. It's at sort of the heart of much of our thinking, because one way of thinking about it is that it's the, um, energy density of the vacuum and I'm going back to the word vacuum. So when I write it, 
I often use rho as density. Many people use rho for density. Sub vac. As if that's an obvious thing, vacuum energy, except that, as I said earlier in this, uh, in this uh, brief thought flow, is that um, uh, the vacuum is fundamentally deformed. It's deformed by the expansion of the universe. It's formed by structure, deformed by structures in the universe. So vacuum is not actually um, this pristine thing that people think about anyway. The bottom line is that that was the original lambda and it was embraced by, well, I won't go into the full history of this, uh, but it would rise up and go down and rise up and go down in terms of its stock, if you like, about whether people were interested in it. Uh, it kind of got resurrected for a few reasons uh, around the mid eighties. And that's when I was, I, I thought it was, a, you know, a great idea. Why? Because uh, it, as well as matter and radiation, uh, the universe can have curvature. I mean, in fact, it's always got curvature on small scales. That's what causes the matter to concentrate. The, anyway, the basic point is that there was this first indication for me that you needed something akin to a lambda. The reason I, uh, uh, going back to the thread of thought there, uh, curving the universe on average on large scales and yet having small fluctuations on smaller scales, and we had evidence for that. Anyway, the basic point is you have to have this large scale curvature if you're going to have what is called an open or closed universe, uh, whether it's curved up like a, a sphere or curved down like a saddle, uh, that was you know what people mostly thought about. Whereas the vacuum energy density um, is something that's constant and scale independent, or at least that's the view. Uh, so then the other dilemma occurred, well, how can it be as small as it would need to be to make a universe like ours. And that continues to be a huge mystery because if you count the, the amount of energy density that you think is in the vacuum, it would depend upon the Planck energy scale. In fact, it would go like the fourth power, which is a huge, huge number, like nothing that we have ever seen. Except the key element here is that you don't apparently get to observe that. You only get to observe differences or changes. And so maybe it can all be well understood that way. But uh, uh, anyway, so I liked Lambda. I liked it as a extension beyond um, just dark matter and uh, and baryons, which are the stuff that we're made of. Uh, and, uh, and so it became part of my kind of standard thing. Uh, and then we were dealing with two kinds of data, um, cosmic microwave background as it was emerging, fluctuations that emerged from the universe around um, uh, 380,000 years after the so-called Big Bang. Uh, 
and that's like 13.8 billion years ago. Um, so that was giving us valuable information. It's since filled in brilliantly, but you know, as it emerged, uh, it was giving us an indication. But you had to, or we had to add large-scale structure to that, the spatial inhomogeneity on large scales of the universe, in order to say it looks like lambda's pretty good. And we did. And then, so that was microwave background and, um, and uh, uh, large-scale structure observations. Uh, then another set of groups, they were looking at supernova and they were developing something, curiously enough, it's called the Hubble diagram, where it's Hubble parameter as a function of time. And uh, if you have an ordinary universe without any lambda, it would have a certain shape. And with lambda, it has a different shape. And so after uh, some stops and starts, uh, it emerged that that looked like it was also indicating uh, accelerated expansion. And that's the one that uh, sort of became the popular way of understanding of how this emerged. But in the microwave background and large-scale structure were right there as the underpinning of this whole story. And then uh, there's another experiment that I was involved in. It's called Boomerang. Um, it was a microwave background experiment called Boomerang because you launch from the uh, Antarctica and uh, the prevailing winds at the top of the atmosphere cause the balloon to go around and around and around. And so you get lots of data. Uh, and it was really the thing that sold the vast community, in particular the particle theorists, on that you have to take this extremely seriously. It's like uh, uh, that, that that's clearly the answer. Then the issue is, what is the nature of this so-called dark energy? I mean, what does it mean to say an energy is dark? For that matter, no, this is not, this is a bit of a joke. For that matter, why do we call it dark matter? And why, since matter and energy are intimately related, why do we have this stupid label? But we do that in this subject. There are stupid labels all over the place. Some actually quite clever, but, you know, up, down, strange charm is is particle theory, right? So, you know, there's a little whimsy that does occur, but dark energy really doesn't convey the information. It's actually uh, uh, potential energy density that at the moment uh, we observe only through its impact on the expansion of the universe and not uh, in any direct experimental way. The hope is that we will be able to, and so, you know, billions of dollars actually have been put into experiments that give huge amounts of astronomical information, but one of their primary raison d'etre was to learn more about the dark energy, which you cannot learn from observations on the Earth in the lab. It is really something writ large in the ultra-large-scale dynamics in the universe. Anyway, it emerged as being a, an ingredient and as time went on, it got uh, the the observational evidence got stronger and stronger and stronger that that was it. And so there were two aspects to this. One is, is it just 
a uniform potential energy density so that everywhere, including in this room, there would be this uh, uniform energy density that's sitting there. You wouldn't really be feeling it, but if it could, it would try and expand you. <laughs> it's just that the other forces are so strong that that doesn't happen. Um, anyway, so there's uh, uh, this kind of uniform energy density that uh, we think is, you know, all pervasive, but the evidence we have it for it is on very large scales. So then the question is, does it change in time? And why is that interesting? It's because it says it might not just be potential energy, it might also have a kinetic component. You know, there are two types when you learn physics in school, there is potential energy and kinetic energy. And so what is the kinetic energy amount of the dark associated with the dark energy? So this is a blazing question. And as I said, we're trying very hard to determine whether or not that's needed. At the moment, it isn't. Uh, and yet, some people say you'll never find it because it's uniform. It's got to be uniform. And I don't ascribe to that. I think that it can change. The thing that, to my mind, is the most interesting is if the dark energy actually interacts with ordinary matter and dark matter so that it can have a spatial dependence, not a sharp spatial dependence, but a spatial dependence that can allow us to determine more about it. Because otherwise, all we get is a number. What's the balance between matter and dark matter? You know, the fact is, we have dark matter here in our galaxy holding it together, but we don't think that we have a very high concentration. We do would have a concentration, but not a very high concentration of dark matter in this room with this relative to the rest of everything else. Everything has its structural aspect, and it's all describable in detail by um, the laws of transport in the universe, um, something that I am very keen about because it's an issue of how does energy go from one place to another. It's uh, And evolution is all associated with transport. And so the transport of baryons, ordinary matter, is different than the transport of dark matter. And the transport of dark energy seems to be particularly simple, but hopefully not so simple that we can't learn more about it than just a single number. So, um, And so all of this is in this mix or this soup of ingredients. And um, I think this is one of the points you want to get to later, so I'll jump into it now and actually go back to my prop here, which is uh, the history of the universe, the so-called thermal history of the universe, starting with this very high density, which is the inflationary epoch, it's the idea is that it was fluctuation this year that ultimately led to structure. Then there is a point at which that incredible coherence breaks up. Uh, a colleague who's actually just in the office next door and I, we coined the phrase a shock in time so that you have this universal accelerated expansion 
which is the dark energy of its time, ultraly universe. But then it kind of shatter isn't the word, but it uh, shocks and becomes all of these kind of fluctuations like uh, photons and electrons and positrons and all of the normal quarks and hadrons and other things that have to arise from our, uh, you know, our observations show it, our existence shows it. Uh, and that is a period in which the density changes. That's uh, a period in which radiation dominates, and there are a number of epochs that are associated with that. Uh, there is the so-called hadronic era, which is uh, the uh, period where you haven't formed um, th that it's primarily a quark gluon plasma, which means that the quarks haven't really, you know, uh, completely gone into neutrons and protons. And then you have all of these, uh, which later become mesons, all of these so-called so gluons, which are the glue that holds them together. And the gluons uh, and the quarks, uh, they're all relativistic and have this large density. You see, I'm speaking as if this is an absolutely obvious stated, uh, you know, from above we had these tablets and it. And that is not true. Everything that one thinks about the ultra-early universe, you know, there could be the rug pulled out from under us or maybe a different way of thinking about it. But the evidence is amazing for the story of cosmic evolution. So we have gone through to the uh, the uh, quark era, but then they, the, the quarks and gluons, but then they um, basically freeze out first into one that's dominated by mesons as well as neutrons and protons. But the neutrons and protons are um, sort of small ingredients relative to the total. I know you want to get to this question as well. So we'll get there. Don't worry. It's nice that I have my prop though. Uh, and there is a period in which you transition from a basically free quarks and gluons that are all in some what's called a plasma, uh, not unlike the plasmas that we're used to with uh, electrons and ions, etc. Uh, and then it becomes hadronic, which means that you, because of the expansion of the universe, you've moved things far enough apart that uh, forces caused um, uh, basically a spectrum of mesons with different masses to form. Ultimately, as the universe continues to expand, those annihilate and that leaves behind the protons and the neutrons. There's still a huge amount and most of the energy is in electrons and protons and neutrinos and photons. Uh, and that is what is called the lepton era of the Big Bang, or at least used to be called that. I mean, to me, it's just a continuous situation. And that is the period. That Hear that sound? 
That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Around a minute in which hydrogen and helium nuclei uh, get the patterns they do. So there's, uh, it's called Big Bang Nucleosynthesis, nuclear for nuclear. And uh, the reactions that occur create the light elements, mostly helium and, and hydrogen remains. And so most of the universe is hydrogen and helium. There's some deuterium. And you don't get very much, almost none, carbon and oxygen and iron or anything like that. That is delayed until the formation of stars. Uh, and you forge those in the nuclear furnaces of the stars, and then you have to explode things and blow them out. So we're passing through these epochs, this thermal history. And so we've gone through this dominance of relativistic particles. So here it was dominated by what was you might call it ultra-early dark energy. Then we have uh, this period of uh, dominance by radiation. And then uh, uh, there is a, a, an epoch, um, or maybe 100,000 years after the Big Bang, where you begin to transition to the dominance of uh, matter, which is non-relativistic. That's when the protons and the neutrons in the dark matter basically take over the dominant things in the expansion. And that's also when the photons decouple. Uh, the word decoupling is something I may use later. Um, as the universe expands, various things at various times decouple. And an extremely important one is when the cosmic microwave background, the photon afterglow of the Big Bang, basically um, stops strongly interacting with the electrons. And so they can split apart, and we observe the residue of that in the cosmic background radiation. Thank you for this prop as well. This was uh, 
from the so-called uh, Wilkinson microwave anisotropy probe, the beach ball. It shows uh, the tiny fluctuations in the microwave background from which we learned so much. And this is basically trying to be a snapshot of the way the universe was uh, 380,000 years after the Big Bang. Now, there are other effects that are occurring, but that's the dominant thing. And since I'm showing you this, which is WMAP, which I was somewhat associated with, I cannot resist but to show uh, the Planck satellite. <coughs> this was an early version of Planck <coughs> as we were taking all of the stuff in front of it, and these are the fluctuations. Planck is still the best experiment and the best information. And I've been in that, involved in that a long time. And it's the best indicator for lambda, the, the cosmological constant. Anyway, uh, so that's this period of dominance by non-relativistic matter and with the photons having propagated up. That was essential for the structure to start collapsing and forming and allowing the ability for galaxies and ultimately planets to form. You had to get it out of the A dominance by um, dark energy and B out of the dominance of radiation in order for a structure to have formed. So that's an extended period. And then in the, well, depends how you rate this, but not so long ago in cosmic history, we now see that it's this expansion is trying to go towards this uniform energy density, which is the new form of the dark energy. So it's an interesting thing that we begin with what is in effect dark energy theory, which is the emergence of the universe. And then we end up with a dark energy, which is the late time behavior. So dark energy, dark energy. Now, what is really curious is that there is no grand unified theory between this and this, which is just egregious. But there are many egregious things in this diagram, which I have not gotten into. Not egregious hints that we haven't folded into the full unfolding of the cosmic evolution story. For example, um, the passage from when it was dominated by radiation to when it was dominated by matter happens to be quite close, relatively close in time, to when the uh, uh, electrons started to uh, uh, coalesce onto the protons and make hydrogen atoms, so the universe passed from uh, fully ionized plasma into a largely neutral medium. And that, that those numbers are close to each other is weird. And there's no explanation for that. Similarly, there's no explanation, although people have tried, of course, for why the amount of baryons, ordinary matter, is so closely tied to the amount of dark matter. There's sort of a factor of six in between them, but six in cosmological terms isn't very much. And so, a full theory should be able to tell us exactly why that's so. And it can emerge. It's just that there is no uh, solidified uh, understanding of why that should be true. 
there, it, it, I think you want to mention WIMPs in the future. Uh, there was something called the WIMP miracle, which does tend to give a by chance relationship between the two. Uh, but, you know, just, well, anyway, I can go on and on. So uh, maybe um, you, you might want to redirect me into something else. I have just given you the full thermal evolutionary history of the universe. And then a question that naturally comes to mind is what happened? Uh, it's a good prop. It's well arranged. Uh, what happened before here? That's time zero. And what's going to happen out here, which is time infinity, if there is such a thing. And uh, obviously, uh, you know, we may have a lot of hubris, but not that much hubris. But the standard picture is that if it really is a potential energy dominated, then the expansion just continues exponentially. That doesn't mean that everything disappears uh, that's ordinary. It's just that uh, everything is being um, uh, kind of, not fully, but somewhat torn apart by the dark energy, um, which is trying to do uh, an accelerated expansion. So even things that are uh, stable right now might not be stable. I mean, there are many reasons for the instability. But uh, then, you know, uh, once upon a time, fooled around with a theory in which this would go up like that, where the density goes up, that's the, uh, and then it would go up to a point and start the whole cycle again, which is kind of a, uh, a, um, a cyclical version of the universe, of which, you know, many people have played that game over time, and it's still popular in certain circles. But the main point is we don't know. It's really interesting physics if it's true. But we don't have an indication really about, you know, what the long-term behavior is here. So we can't really predict our future. And uh, what is, I, I have my own ideas, not that different from some other people's ideas, on uh, how we go from before time zero through to, there is no time zero is the basic uh, answer it it is uh, uh, that the expansion of the universe, which is necessary, the coherent expansion of the universe, which is necessary to make the universe as we see it around us, uh, it emerges. It emerges from some, maybe it's, a, you could call it a quantum soup or something, with, again, fluctuations all over the place. Uh, anyway, all of that, is, of course, I mean, you have to be very careful here. What do you know? What do you think you know? And what's heavy speculation? There's a lot of fun in heavy speculation. And, you know, you can do some theorizing. And what we prize most, I'm a theorist, what you, we prize most is a, a, a detailed mathematical understanding of the kind of phenomenon that one's trying to uh, explore, uh, explore mentally, you know, exploring it observationally, really, not these ultra-early epochs. I mean, you would like to find some signature of what happened at time before the Big Bang or whatever, and people have proposed those things, too, um, that there may be relics, those sort of 
come and go and come and go of uh, things that occurred before the so-called Big Bang and propagated through it and changed their structural forms. Um, these are highly speculative, great fun. And then the question is, when you get the avalanche of papers, which constantly appear on these subjects, how much attention do you want to give to each one? Because, you know, a lot of it's whistling in the wind as well. Playing in the sandbox is maybe another way to say it. What does the Hubble tension indicate about the future of the universe? This issue of um, the Hubble tension, if it's physics, then it's saying that something different than what we think is going on. Uh, and there is some kind of passage that has occurred and the time of that passage would be later than when the current dark energy overtook uh, the non-relativistic dominance of the universe. Um, and so that's, you know, obviously exciting, if true. And the skepticism or worries that occur is that these observational campaigns are really difficult to get right. And uh, one of the advantages, paradoxically, of the cosmic microwave background at 380,000 years is that it's relatively simple to understand, whereas once you're dealing with real astrophysics, supernova and uh, uh, Cepheid variable stars and things like this, uh, there are all sorts of effects that you may not be able to fully deal with theoretically and you just use as... Um, uh, well, it looks like this is the trend, so let's use that law and let's say that it's perfect everywhere. Um, anyway, so that's into the dark energy thing. So it makes, um, I mean, nominally, the density on average is related to this Hubble parameter. And so if the Hubble parameter is like 10% um, uh, difference, roughly speaking, uh, according to this Hubble tension, then if you were really naive, you'd say, ah, something has happened to cause the H to go up. What is that? And so it would be a really profound uh, implication for the universe at large if it turns out to be true. And we will get the uh, better and better experimental information on this. I mean, there's no question. We have these huge campaigns that are going on. Uh, the... Uh, James Webb Telescope, of course, is the thing that is most uh, in the public mind, but the number of, uh, of experiments, of observations, observatories in all wave bands that are covering the sky is just enormous. And it's a tribute to humans that they've decided that this is one of the places where our resources should be put into. And, you know, I believe in this strongly. I should because I'm an astronomer, but I believe in this strongly because it's going back to treating the universe in terms of the ideas of the age of reason, which is where we were at at the beginning, which is reasoned. How can we reconcile the variance of dark matter? Anyway, uh, but then you were asking about the issues of dark matter and uh, what is it? And uh, we know of it 
at the moment only through its effect on gravity. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's um, not dark matter or that other alternatives are reasonable. I mean, we have a lot of really interesting evidence for it that has uh, actually been around since the 1930s. It sort of picked up steam around the early 70s. Uh, and I'll just explain that for a second. So in the 30s, a very smart guy said, you know, if there wasn't something else, the lotion of galaxies in a, you know, this is not too long after Hubble, right? Hubble expansion, right? It The, the velocities of the galaxies within clusters of galaxies the thing would have fallen apart if there wasn't something extra, and this was the dark matter, the first indication. Uh, then um, uh, some colleagues uh, very cleverly said, you know that a galaxy would be unstable if there wasn't some kind of dark matter holding it together. So this was an issue of, you know, galaxies. A lot of them were in these spiral forms, and uh, those would be unstable. And so the invention was, oh, let's put a halo of something around it to stop this thing going unstable. And then the issue is, what is it? Well, the original idea is let's be conventional and let's just say that there's stars, but stars that are a bit difficult to see. And, you know, I got into that game. We were especially interested in whether there could be a lot of black holes doing it. It's still possible that uh, black holes could be the dominant source, but we were especially interested in uh, black holes that might have come from an early generation of stars rather than from the ultra-early universe. If they come from the ultra-early universe, it's like other forms of dark matter. You might call them wimps, <laughs> except that it would be, they're called primordial black holes. Uh, anyway, there's that possibility. Then um, uh, there was a period where neutrinos, well, neutrinos do have masses, but it was possible that their masses would be such that they could make the dark matter. And that was extremely exciting, but it made certain predictions which turned out not to be true. It's still a component of dark matter, but not the dominant one. And then as we explored it further, we said, okay, well, you know, it can't be the neutrinos because they were created from the early universe moving too fast. Uh, so let's deal with a colder variety, and that's called cold dark matter. And uh, I had a lot of fun exploring all of those possibilities in the... Uh, uh, early 80s, actually through to now. And, uh, you know, then an issue is just like with the dark energy, but even more so, what are the interactions of this stuff? And that manifests itself in a few ways. Uh, to create it and decouple it, uh, that requires interaction beyond gravity, and that would be early universe. So... Uh, and there are various things that can be dark matter that arise in the early universe. One of them is these weakly interacting massive particles. The weakly interacting, that's what neutrinos are. They're weakly interacting. 
It's just that the mass is a bit higher here than the neutrino masses, which is why they turn out to be cold. But then there are other possibilities that there is this sort of more wave-like dark matter, uh, just to give the term, they're called axions, uh, that also were uh, emerging at the time and that we folded into the possibilities for the cold dark matter. So those were kind of the panoply of things that were on the table with a lot of work on the weakly interacting massive particles sort and the different theories that could give rise to them. And then the exciting issue was uh, that if they have interactions, which they must have to have decoupled in the early universe, it means that those same interactions can manifest themselves around us. And so, you know, huge expenditures have occurred to try and directly detect the dark matter, not just gravitationally, but in, for example, uh, now that we're here in Canada, the Sudbury Neutrino Observatory in Sudbury, which is a very deep mine, has got a lot of experiments that are trying to detect the evidence for the dark matter that's all around us coursing through the Earth and making reactions that you can then infer uh, the nature of dark matter. The executive summary is that after all of this time, we still have the situation where dark matter has an uncertainty in its mass that's, uh, what, 60 orders of magnitude, at least. In other words, we still don't know, but that doesn't mean that dark matter isn't there. It is there. It's just a question of you know, how do we actually detect it by non-gravitational means. Can you walk us through one of your academic adventures? It's more of how I approach things, which is uh, early on I got enamored by uh, the universe as a collective. I mean, it is, but, you, you know, that it really got into me so that if you have a slab of matter, let's take this table as an example, and because I uh, did a lot of my original research at the beginning on neutrinos, they're really weakly interacting. So you have neutrinos coming in, they do this little tickling, and in order to get the response, you think of this entire table as a thing that's responding, even though, you know, we're used to thinking about point-light phenomenon. But there is a whole collectivity of things. So that's point one. I love the collective and how, and that's the whole idea of the cosmic web, everything interconnected with everything else. But then the other great passion I have is for entropy. And entropy, um, of course, it was a thermodynamic concept uh, that was developed to understand heat engines and all of that. And uh, people have been struggling with entropy uh, for a very long time. And there is this guy, you may have heard of him, Shannon, who uh, was interested in information flowing along channels. And um, I'm going to tell the story. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. 
Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Corey, you're going to say, oh, you're taking too long. But anyway, it was a great story. Uh, Von Neumann, who was the person that took entropy and made it into something that was quantum mechanically compatible. Uh, Shannon asked him, I have this thing. It's sort of like entropy. Uh, what should I call it? He said, just call it entropy. Nobody understands entropy. So my whole career has been trying to understand entropy, which I now think I sort of do. In a way, I'm still struggling with a full grand unified vision of how it relates to everything. Now, why is this getting back into your other question? So I, I can also, of course, uh, expound upon, you know, specific concrete things like, you know, the role in the cosmic microwave background, in the cosmic web, the things that are, you know, concrete aspects that we've got information on. But let's go back to this more general picture which is more along the theme that you're trying to get to, which is theory of everything. Um, Whichever route you believe would be more appropriate to answer that question. Well, the, I'm, I'm going to, first of all, uh, give a little anecdote. Um, theory of everything. Been around for quite a while. Of course, grand unified theory is what everybody's been striving for. So I was at a conference, many people, including uh, Jim Peebles, a Nobel Prize winner, were at a conference uh, on Vancouver Island. And um, uh, playing Tarzan, I swung into, this will sound crazy, but I, I swung into a pond, hit my toe on a rock, and it broke. And so I had, you know, had to do some uh, pain pills or something. But I had to still do my talks. So I decided to make this into a cosmic joke and said, I am now going to tell you about my theory of everything. The toe, because that's what it was, T-O-E, the toe, right? And so I used the whole spiel to make a theory of the universe associated with my toe being broken and uh, the search for solution and healing of the toe. Anyway. What is this to get across? It's to get across that if you don't have humor in dealing with the quest for toe, then you're not thinking about it right. People are 
very serious about their search for the grand unified theory. Likely situation is humans will never get there, but you know, you got to keep trying. What role do higher dimensional manifolds play in structuring the universe? The, the more important thing than metric is the square root of metric, if you know what I mean. It is called, uh, in four dimensions, it's called a fearbine. It is a field. It's a field with labels. And the labels are energy. So it's like a gauge field. And one of the parts of it is energy. Energy is, in that case, like a charge. So it then means that that quantity, the Feuerbein for energy, is quite, quite analogous to the photon field, the electromagnetic field for charge. They're the same in structure and how they play out. Momentum with the three dimensions that we now have uh, of, of space, they each have their gauge field. They have their minds. And they couple in exactly the same way as the photons. Even more so, their coupling it is more closely related to how the gluons that hold things together work. So when people ask, and that was one of the questions which I think you were trying to get at, is, is gravity real? And I will tell you that if gravity is very, very similar to all of these other situations, the interesting thing is that you put energy together with uh, this fear mind, they couple together tightly, and that makes action. And action is, if you look at any particle physics paper, the very first thing they do is they write down the action. The action is the thing that is coupling the forces of action and reaction together, and it causes the whole process to occur. Not unlike yin and yang, actually, but, you know, one can riff off of these philosophical thoughts. But basically, the structure of, uh, of the universe seems to be that uh, you have something akin to a charge, and then the universe or the reservoir or whatever, or the vacuum, is responding to the charge, and the two are tightly coupled together. And an interesting question from my perspective now is how tightly they're coupled together, but the main point is that they uh, form this quantity together. So this concept of gravity being so different is, in my view, just people play it in the sandbox, but it's uh, dirty sand or something. Is gravity an emergent property? People have played with um, an attempt to make uh, what is in effect a thermodynamic view. Whether thermodynamic or non-thermodynamic, it's the same thing. It's just that, um, I mean, again, it's kind of playing with ideas, but in my view, not looking at them as they are. You see, thermodynamics is not just, you know, temperature or something. Fundamental is change. And so... In any thermodynamic system, of which this room is an example, it's an open one, but it's true, uh, 
there are thermodynamic fluctuations all over. And there are gradients in the thermodynamic uh, potentials that cause things to move, for example, from hot to cold. I mean, that's, you know, standard thing. That actually is the story of entropy, which is intimately related to the story of action, which is also gradients associated with flowing from here to there. So the second derivative of these things is got all of the aspects or many of the aspects of curvature associated with it. And curvature is one way that uh, we understand how gravity is operating. And so uh, what we're dealing with is an attempt to find a language. But the thing is, all the languages are all ultimately going to tell us the same thing. It's just that if you hear something in different languages or with different words, you can get further insight. And then some people get locked into just a single language. It is great to develop uh, a uh, many ways of looking at the same phenomenon. And, uh, and that can allow you to grow. So when people want to say, oh, it's just thermodynamics, I don't think they're thinking about it deeply enough. Uh, but if they're saying it's just classical curvature and that gravity is really classical, they're not thinking about it enough. Uh, so to me, that is not the mystery. And the structure is not the mystery. The mystery is perhaps, and, and I'll get right back to it, uh, is... Uh, how things emerged, and what did they emerge from? I think, you know, I can play around with ideas of what was there that caused emergence. My view is that uh, apart from entropy and phase, which is also called quantum mechanics, it turns out, the log of uh, Schrodinger's psi wave function is... I times complex action, of which the real part is the usual action, and the imaginary part is one half of the um, entropy. That's the universal relationship. And at its heart is the quantum phenomenon. And quantum mechanics is the language of the universe. And what it's doing it's saying that I do not, I, there are forces that are there in Schrodinger's equation, for example, that try and take the ensemble of possible realizations and make sure that they're spread apart. See, now I'm getting into where I, obviously some uncertainty, but that is where we are headed, in my view. I mean, I am headed there. And what I'm seeing is that everybody's headed there. That is to say, the concept of information and the laws of information, which is quantum information, all quantum, is the underlying architecture of everything. And so when you say, is gravity quantum mechanics writ large? Yes, it is. Uh, but that's because it splits into entropy and action. And the way entropy and action work is that it's a product of 
charge times response to charge. So that this is kind of the universal story. So then, getting back to your question, because I haven't forgotten it, which is something about spin. Spin's really interesting here, and we could riff on that for a while. But uh, the basic point is that the metric picture is a picture of uh, effectively, uh, even though it's done as a metric squared, uh, distance squared, uh, at some level it is a, an expression of either action squared or entropy squared. And so, okay, that's interesting. Uh, but it's like, uh, what am I going to say? There is something called the density matrix in quantum mechanics, which encodes all of the information. And it basically is telling you about how a system changes from one form to another. Um, and what we do is we split it up into a product and we call that product the wave function. So the density is a, a quadratic combination of wave functions. And what's interesting about that is that it's a complex product. So there are two elements. One is action, which is phase. And then... Uh, and then there's the overall density aspect, which is entropy. Entropy is count, and phase is coherence among counts. So I've taken you to where I am actually spending much of my thinking. And how am I doing it? I'm doing it by concrete problems with many of my colleagues around here. So the theory of inflation is a fantastic playground for all of these ideas. Because I want to use, you know, something which can actually have observable consequences in order to improve my comprehension of how the universe actually works. So that's what the quest is. Now, if you are talking about spin metrics, well, the first point is that usually we deal with four dimensions, time, three, space. Then uh, within string theory, there was an argument for it being depending upon how you did it, 10 dimensions or 11 dimensions. To me, every degree of freedom is a dimension, which means that it's x, y, z, t, z, by the way, uh, and then all the fields. And the fields are dimensions. Why not? And so... Then the issue is, is a particle, a particle itself a field, or is it always a collection? And that's uh, an interesting uh, issue. So in my view, dimensions are relatively easy to create and destroy, and it is not something that people should be overly intimidated by. But of course, historically, we had this path, which meant that people's minds were kind of... Uh, frozen in because it takes time for people to adapt. And now I'd say that partly because string theory didn't break, make the breakthroughs that people had thought because it's complicated. I mean, it may still be underlying, but uh, as a result of that, all these bright minds have been pushing at all these other questions in physics. And it seems to me we're on the cusp of a real breakthrough. And what unifies the whole thing together 
is essentially information theory. I mean, and I'm not the only one saying this. It's just that I came to it from a very different route. It's basically been where I've been going all along, but now I see he's doing it, he's doing it, she's doing it, she's doing it. That is what is kind of dominating the minds. And then what it blends with is the Googleites of this world because they see the world as information and that's human information. And human information and physics information, just like with Shannon, uh, information along channels and thermodynamic information, it's the same thing. So if we are talking about a theory of everything, a grand unified theory, then it must fundamentally engage in not just the existence of humans that happened on this little planet and, and you know, chemical operations of unbelievable complexity all came together to produce this tremendous force of life, which just is, uh, doesn't seem to be, well, humans look like they can repress it, but uh, is irrepressible life everywhere, right? It's something, I mean, it's amazing how if something goes wrong, Mother Nature comes up with something else, something else, something else. That all has to be fully integrated. And the problem is that it seems so impossible because everything is so complex that how can you make a grand unified theory? Well, you do it by saying there's principles. You wanted it to be framed in terms of laws. Law unclear. Uh, I mean, that's the way people used to think about it, right? There has law. There has been, uh, from above, a law has been dictated. But laws are created. Just like things evolve, a law can evolve. A law is an expression of a collective, back to collective. And so this is one of the interesting things that I'm into now we call these things effective potentials that uh, define how flows, trajectories, realities change. And usually what you do in physics is you say, let there be this effective potential, and then let's look at the consequences. But the view I have is that, yeah, but it feed, feeds back, and the law or the effective potential changes. And so there's a feedback. Then the question is, how does it all fit together in some TOE? But the most important thing, maybe it's because I'm in my dotage, is that, uh, I mean, this has always been the goal. I think it's everybody's goal. You want to have a grand unified theory that includes all of human phenomenology. And not just from the point of view of us as kind of mechanical beings, but us as uh, uh, generators of ideas. And does this include consciousness? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, consciousness writ large, that is to say, um, you know, Plato, cave. Little ideas become capital ideas, capital I. And he would have said it's the capital ideas which are the real truth and the little ideas are just the shadows that are playing out. Uh, I'm not 
going to go that far, but the profundity of their thinking was enormous, in my view. Everybody else would say the same thing. But it isn't translated into this world as much as it should be that ideas are the things that have been the great creation. I mean, Mother Nature obviously created them in some sense, but we have something that happened on this planet, which is the creation of these mega ideas, which required many things. We had to learn writing. We had to learn to speak to each other. We had to, that is all physics. So when you ask, what is universe? The universe is you and you and you, and that is the subject. That's a subject of physics, theoretical physics. It's why I got so impassioned by it from the beginning because I think I had a glimpse of that's what it should be and could become. Whether or not I'll get there, I don't know, or whether, you know, I'll go blabbering off on this, except that it is an attempt within, you know, one being to have a mini grand unification. And I think that's what everybody is trying to do. They're trying to unify their being under maybe not just one capital idea, although religion is one capital idea, does spirituality play into your life? I believe in everything and nothing. That is my mantra. And that is actually a fundamental statement of the universe. Um, in condensed matter physics, what is fundamental are things called particles and holes. You know, in going back to matter and antimatter, which you wanted to raise earlier of why baryons and not antibaryons, uh, the holes are the positrons and the particles are the electrons. But it could have been that the positrons are the particles and the holes are the electrons. That is to say it's totally reciprocal. It's just that something built the symmetry, relatively small force, but something created the symmetry. Um, it may sound like I'm escaping uh, what you wanted to get at, which is um, uh, everything I do is, I don't know, would you use the word spiritual? It is just trying to understand the raison d'etre, why, you know, age of reason, raison d'etre. What are we here for? What am I here for? What is happening? And th this is unfortunately the situation I'm at right now. The way I see it, it's not unlike ancient Hindu, I guess, um, that uh, most of the universe writ large may be this kind of fluctuating component in which uh, nothing special is arising. And then every now and again, there is the development of coherence. And coherence can breed instability, and that's what happened in the ultra-early universe. And a way to say that is that there was a bubble of Hubble parameter that was coherent. So instead of it being all sorts of fluctuations like this, it developed kind of something where this was connected to this, connected to this. And then that coherence becomes unstable to further development. And so the universe that we can see is that sort of entity in which there's this huge degree of coherence. But if I were, well, I'm not going to bet on this, but uh, I would say that the most natural situation is not to have that 
it is to have all these random things happening without there being coherence, um, you know, talking to each other. So, so, so that, so what I guess what I'm trying to say is that uh, my, to the extent there's spirituality, it is more a philosophical spirituality, uh, mathematical physics view of, but trying to integrate all of human phenomenology in the same, in the same basic umbrella. Then there was another question. I can't remember what that was. Ah, well, you know, one of the amazing things is the sheer number of planets that are being observed now. I mean, there was a time when they, we only had the nine, then we had the eight, if you know what I mean, with Pluto. Uh, but we have this huge panoply. It is ubiquitous that there are planets. And at least with the Earth as an example, which is clearly, in my view, special, not just because we're here, but because of this incredible balance of how water came out and is in all of its forms and it's got, you know, uh, the porridge is just right, you know, I mean, it's amazing. Uh, but there are so many planets, conditions not unlike that may have happened and life will choose other paths in order to organize its chemistry. And the organization of chemistry is just so amazing. It's one of the things that intimidates me about trying to do a TOE or a granification. It is, you know, how this unbelievable complexity emerged from simplicity. And it's uh, playing out. It played out in the early universe with the development of uh, nucleons, then nuclei, then atoms. And then the atoms cohered, but we needed to make complex atoms in the furnace of stars in order to create uh, planets, which could then create life. I mean, it's it's amazing that all of this stuff was worked out, and uh, I guess that means that Mother Nature is, you know, working out her equations as we're going. I don't know, and so that's why I don't really have that view. I often use the terminology Mother Nature just to give it, um, not because I'm anthropomorphizing, it's just because um, it things happen that I'm not in control of. And Mother Nature is in control of them and has defined all of us, and it's amazing how she has. Anyway, I would like to find a TOE. So this is getting back to the original thing. And, but the TOE must have humanity fully integrated, not just as, you know, these chemical beings, but as chemical beings that are capable of, uh, of creating uh, and passing on knowledge and information and processing it. What's important to consider for the future? I think that it, what is probably unstoppable is um, the transcendence of human beings as biological entities. That is to say, I mean, we can see it, right? I mean, we have these devices, but uh, this is now as if it's part of my brain, right? And the amount of exterior information in this is outrageous and is full connection, and it's connecting us Fortunately, I don't tweet, 
but it connects everybody and everybody's buzzing. And it's making, well, you know, the word is the hide mentality and all of that. And it's got pluses and it's got minuses. Obviously, their minuses are completely evident in this day and age. But the pluses are there as well. The amount of information that I can get just from this thing right here and now is just outrageous. So then that's the um, integration of the machine into the being of the human being. And that's unstoppable no matter what people say, no matter... You know, Elon Musk and others are saying, oh, we have to worry about um, the development of the machine life. Uh, I don't think that we can stop that. That's the natural flow of information. And then, you know, if that's true, how did that manifest itself with civilizations that are more advanced than us? Uh, they will have integrated with machines. I mean, what's the difference between a mach biological machine and a... Uh, and a mechanical machine, and why wouldn't they be intimately related? Because, you know, you can make complex um, chemical things in a machine. So uh, what is our future? That's just impossible. We can't even say it here and now in 2023, happy 2023, by the way, of what things will look like in 2050. I mean, you can't because it's moving so fast. Things are integrating so fast. Our problem is instability. Now, I extolled the virtues of instability in creating universes, but instability can also create disasters, and we are moving towards a disaster, which is that this precious planet, if I mean, I'm just saying what everybody knows, this precious planet is being... Uh, transformed by human interactions because we are this collective hive that's able to make these transformations and we've got an, such a large number of people that uh, it requires an incredible amount of us being uh, self-controlled and able to manage as a coherent entity, humanity. Uh, so there is, you know, futurologists, what's a futurologist? They don't know. Nobody knows because it's all changing so rapidly. I mean, the changes in my life have been amazing. The change that you're seeing is amazing. And then what's coming is either even more amazing or even more disastrous. It's just a question of whether that we can, you know, gain control over the forces that are going to try and split us all apart. Uh, so if we then want to say, what about the theory of everything within this context? One way or another, that's what we're going to be moving towards, and I think it'll be based upon information theory, quantum information, because that's the law of the land. And, uh, and you know, is it going to be from Hal the computer, or is it going to be from, you know, one or two people with their blackboards? And the answer is probably Hal, uh, but... This is, in my view, much more creative and fun. To, and then the other thing that I will fold into that is that, it, you know, we've all been zooming our life away in the last few years, and that's not a bad way of communicating. But there's something intangible about humans in the same room in relatively small groups interacting together, basically getting... Um, intellectually high together with ideas 
ideas again. And that is precious. And I guess machines can get there. Why wouldn't they? They can enhance it. But uh, it's something which uh, is not reproducible over Zoom. So that gives hope for the biological machine that there is a phenomenology which is occurring, which we do not understand really. Although, of course, many people with religion think they understand it, but that, that's... Anyway, so future is murky. Future is murky. The podcast is now concluded. Thank you for watching. If you haven't subscribed or clicked on that like button, now would be a great time to do so, as each subscribe and like helps YouTube push this content to more people. Also, I recently found out that external links count plenty toward the algorithm, which means that when you share on Twitter, on Facebook, on Reddit, etc., it shows YouTube that people are talking about this outside of YouTube, which in turn greatly aids the distribution on YouTube as well. If you'd like to support more conversations like this, then do consider visiting theoriesofeverything.org. Again, it's support from the sponsors and you that allow me to work on Toe full-time. You get early access to ad-free audio episodes there as well. Every dollar helps far more than you may think. Either way, your viewership is generosity enough. Thank you.